0: Before we get to the episode, we want to take a moment to address the June 24, 2022 Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the right to have a safe and legal abortion. Everyone should have the freedom to decide what's best for themselves and for their families, including when it comes to ending a pregnancy. This decision has dire consequences for individual health and safety and could have harsh repercussions for other landmark decisions. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all. Learn more by visiting choice.crd.co. That's choice.crd.co. If you're able to support others, please consider donating to abortion funds. We encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. Baseball. It's America's favorite pastime. There's nothing like the rivalries between teams, the excitement of catching and keeping a ball. Nothing compares to going to your old ballpark on a sunny day, wearing your Dodgers jersey, having a hot dog, a cold beer, and cheering on your team. But have you ever stopped to wonder what used to be here before it became Dodger Stadium? What was destroyed so that you could drink, cheer, and root your favorite team? everyone this is christina and carmen and this is historias unknown formerly known as it was capitalism all along Mm -hmm, yes we we are now historias unknown and if you didn't hear my little announcement we basically we changed it so that we could cover a wider range of topics in addition to what we were already going to cover um, we thought it was a better fit a lot of brainstorming and combination of things (laughs) to see if it it sounded right and we settled on historias unknown and i feel like it's pretty i like it pretty catchy yeah but today today i will be telling you carmen and all of our listeners about the battle of chavez ravine or also known as the displacement of mexican-american communities for the dodger stadium how much do you know about this I know that it happened. <laughs> okay, yeah. And I remember I think you told me about it as you're researching, but also I read about it before somewhere about like the last house that stood. But that's about it. When did you first hear about it? Um, I want to say it was when um I started following She used to be known as Chicanisma, but now and Femme Waves. She's Anfem Waves. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I, what, I started following her, I don't know, it was a long time ago. So, was it when you went to, you started college, I think. Yeah. So started getting into a lot of this. I was radicalized. Yes. <laughs> As they say. In, um, yeah, in in college, in UC Merced. <laughs> Hala. <laughs> I joined the feminist club there. Yeah, anyway, I that's when I, I followed. I found her. And I learned so much from her. And that was one of the things that I learned. I just learned about this, like, I don't even know, a couple months ago when I was listening to Dark History, uh, the Bailey Sarian podcast. I actually didn't listen to that episode. (laughs) Yeah, she briefly mentions mentions it because she also talks about another two parks that were Black communities that this happened to. But I had no idea it happened. And I feel like being from California, maybe it was something that we should have learned about. Yeah, definitely. I know. So when I was at MJC, I took a history of California class. I don't think it talked like I think it was history as in way, way long ago. Okay, when it was mainly indigenous, and I think until uh, the Spanish colonized it, and then it became Mexico, and then United States stole it. I think that's how far the class got. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Yeah, I didn't learn about this at all. So yeah, that's why I wanted to cover it, because I'm sure maybe some people know, but I feel like the majority of people don't know still. <laughs> yeah. So before it was Los Angeles, it was home to the Tong. I don't know how to say this, Tongva, Tonga. Tongva people, T-O-N-G-V-A. <laughs> you didn't Google it? No, I'm sorry. I should have. <laughs> Anyway, it was home to the Tongva people and the Chumash people. And then Spanish explorers arrived in 1542 and they claimed it. And they started naming places like this is Los Angeles. This is San Pedro. This is Santa Catalina Island. But then they left and, and no one really lived there except the people that were already there. Right. And then in 1771, they set up missionaries. And then 10 years later, the first Spanish settlers arrived. And they founded the town, Well, and, and this is all in quotations, founded, right? Because, yeah. like, it was already there. <laughs> so they founded the town of El Pueblo de Nuestra Señora de la Reina de Los Ángeles. Ay, Jesucristo. Dios mío. Bebé. Nativo de yeah. Jerusalem. <laughs> <laughs> Why? But yeah, so this is what would be known as Los Angeles <laughs> later. It's just all those names. I felt like I needed to say everything. You to add more <laughs> names understandable (laughs) and so yeah when Mexico won its independence from Spain this area was then part of Mexico and then by then it had grown in size and then during the Mexican American war Americans took California from Mexico along with other land and and this is all like ignoring the fact that this was already the land of the Tonga and the Chumash people yes that goes without saying but yeah i just needed to mention it again so yeah so then before before this occurred though in 1844 a spanish man named julian chavez purchased 83 acres of land in los angeles and this was later known as chavez ravine it's named after him and he was like a some some sort of like prominent governor person in of los angeles and so uh, he purchased those 83 acres of land and this is where Dodger Stadium is now located. For a long time, this area was pretty uninhabited. Between the years, 1850 and 1880, it was used as a pest house. And that is where they treat sick people with smallpox. Oh, My mind went somewhere else, like pest house. I was like, mice? <laughs> so yeah, it was a pest house that, and that's where they treated people with smallpox. And there was a smallpox epidemic at this time, and why didn't they um, call it pox house? That would have been good. Wow, right? they missed opportunity, really. <laughs> 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 and this pest house mostly cared for Mexican American and chinese American patients. later in the 1850s, it became a Jewish American neighborhood with a small Mexican-American presence. It slowly grew, but during the Mexican Revolution, there was a huge migration from Mexico to the West Coast, mainly Arizona and then California. Entire pueblos from Mexico migrated together, and they would settle in communities together, almost as if they had a little piece of their own country in these communities, because the entire, entire pueblos moved together, crossed the border together. I mean, it was not a border then, they just traveled they could travel back and forth and well, yeah first just went north <laughs> yeah they went north but all together yeah so which is like so it was like they just it was still mexico basically except not mexico right but yeah <laughs> yeah so a lot of this little pueblo that was very close to fresnillo zacatecas found themselves first in arizona together they arrived at the Chavez ravine area and there was almost nothing there so they built their homes from scratch they laid the foundations and brick by brick they built their houses. Like again. You know, it amazes me how people used to build stuff. God, seriously, can you like and do anything back then? Yeah. I don't know. They they fled their their war-torn country, moved to Arizona, then the the work there was getting bad, so they moved to LA and literally built houses from scratch. Like yeah. <laughs> I could never I can't even paint. <laughs> I'm over it. This y'all, she has been painting her house for years now. <laughs> weeks. <laughs> yeah. For a very long time. It feels like it. Every time I'm like, what are you doing this weekend? Painting. I'm painting. <laughs> <sighs> okay, so um so then Chavez Ravine became a semi rural Mexican community. And these neighborhoods were uh La Loma, Bishop, and Palo Verde and by white american standards they were an eyesore uh on los angeles they were the slums they were poor uh, but by their own standards these three neighborhoods were thriving they had their own local church their elementary school and they knew how to organize uh they they um went to the city to finally give them electricity while the, cuz they were like one of the last neighborhoods to get electricity they advocated for a park, for their elementary school. It was a very progressive elementary wow. school, too, um, with a very good principal and their church. I mean, its a, it was a Catholic church, but it was like so every, everything about this place was so community oriented. Like, it was amazing to read about. But yeah, they, so they were I mean, they were doing great. Like, <laughs> Sounds like it. Yeah, they were homeowners that had to build their own homes because they couldn't have houses in the rest of L.A. due to redlining. Of course. Yeah, if you don't know what redlining is, it's basically like very, very watered down. Like they didn't give house loans to uh, non-white people. Yeah. So while the people of La Loma, Bishop, and Palo Verde loved and advocated for their neighborhood, it was a stain on the city for everyone else. So unknown to the people of Chavez Ravine, there was a na- a man, his name was Frank Wilkinson, and he worked for the Los Angeles Housing Authority. And uh, he, his main thing was like finding places to create uh projects, pub- public housing. That was his thing. And he like believed in his mission, right? Like he even lived in the projects himself. Wow. Because that's how much he believed he was helping people with these public housings. And yeah, in some areas, it was probably helping. However, he truly believed that he had to get rid of this neighborhood that was like an eyesore in order to build public housing in this already existing community. But people already had houses there? (laughs) Yeah. Like like they built their houses, right? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. They had built their own homes. But he... He was like your houses are trash. I can do a you one better. Basically, this um this guy. I'm not gonna go too much into his history, but um he he, he was a communist. He joined the communist party in secret because it had to be a secret back then, right? Yeah. And he um he traveled to like another quote unquote third world country and was appalled at how poor it was. And then he traveled to the Soviet Union and saw how, like, people were actually doing good. And so he returned, and he would tell everyone that he knew, like, they were living in squalor. And then someone that he knew told him, you don't even have to travel to these places to, like, see people living in those same conditions. And that person took him to these neighborhoods. And that's when he was like, wow, this is disgusting. This is an eyesore. I need to help these people because they cannot help themselves. And so... He to convince people that that he, the the uh, city needed a uh, public housing built there. He would take them to that neighborhood in buses, like it was like a bus um, tour. That's disgusting. <laughs> yeah, a whole bus bus tour for the slums is what he called it, and he would just take them there. And these were people's homes. Like, I'm and, sorry, this just goes to show, like the number one rule I don't know of, quote, helping a community, is to ask the community what it needs. And if the community does not want public housing <laughs> and is okay with the housing they already made for themselves, then mind your fucking business. <laughs> also, it yes. goes to show how people think they're doing good and they're actually doing harm yes. when they don't take culture into account. Yeah. So, So this man, Frank Wilkinson, like he ad- he was advocating advocating to turn these three neighborhoods into the Elysian Park Heights. Elysian Park Heights would be a new public housing development. Uh, it was planned to take up 54 acres and that, and it would include 24 13-story buildings and 163 one-story buildings which would provide 3600 new low and in- low-cost apartments. But in order for Elysian Park Heights to happen, the neighborhoods of La Loma, Bishop, and Palo Verde would be destroyed. And like like I already said, Frank Wilkinson believed this was necessary. And this was his idea of ridding uh, LA of poverty and helping people. So yeah, he would take developers, investors, people that needed convincing about Elysian Park Heights on bus tours. So they could see the appalling slums. Where people were living, like which I just, I mean, we already said that, but like, wow. So in 1951, Frank Wilkinson and the Los Angeles Housing Authority were able to slate the Chavez Ravine neighborhoods for redevelopment, and they sent official letters to the residents of these neighborhoods. And uh, many of the people of Chavez Ravine could not read English. Some of them couldn't read Spanish either. So when they were checking their mail, they could see like this is an official letter from Los Angeles. So some of them called their own children to translate. Um, and just the trauma. Can you I mean, if if that would have been our family, that would have been us translating like, you know, like, oh, my God, they're going to destroy our house. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> And and this is the moment they learned that their homes were to be torn down for the Elysian Park Heights, a new housing complex. But worry not, because they could apply first to live in this complex according to the letter that they received. However, many of the people of La Loma, Bishop, and Palo Verde were not eligible to even apply to live in Elysian Park because they were undocumented. Oh my God. So like Frank Wilkinson believed that they were all going to live in this new apartment complex anyway. So it wasn't a big deal to tear down their houses and give them somewhere better to live. I'm sorry. <laughs> did he even look at the requirements of the public housing and to see if that community was even eligible? No. Cause he didn't care. Like not all the majority. Yeah. The majority could not even apply because they were undocumented. And they also had like, they had their own gardens where they, that they all shared. They had uh livestock. A lot of them had chickens goats that they all like would cook and just it was like a such a community oriented neighborhood. So how can you have that with these giant apartments? You can't. And if and if he's supposedly a communist, uh how does that, it sounds like he's destroying something that was more communist that and then to put up apartments that would destroy the community minded environment that they had already built for themselves. Uh ridiculous. He truly believed he was doing good here. <laughs> Sounds about white. Yes, very. <laughs> so um before I continue with this, let me explain how this is even legal because it is legal. So um the city and like cities how can they just determine, like, this neighborhood's too poor and we're going to get rid of it to build something? So this is legal thanks to the National Housing Act of 1949, which gave states federal money for public housing. This act, Chives Ravine, was slated for redevelopment and the Los Angeles Housing Authority began to collect land in 1951. This is all possible because of eminent domain. And eminent, eminent domain is the government's right to take private property for public use If they compensate the property owners. So in one of my social work classes, we watched this documentary of, oh, my God, I wish I remembered where (laughs) the place was. I want to say it was somewhere in New York. But there was this community that they ended up taking back their own, like, houses that were being foreclosed and, like, all this property using that same law. Oh, my God. So they turned it over on its head and use it against the government. That's beautiful. That is beautiful, especially because Central Park was another place where a black community yeah. was destroyed to create Central Park using eminent domain. So mm-hmm. that is amazing to hear. Um, wow. But that was not the case here, sadly, because I mean, I mean, this was just yeah. created. And yeah, this is just one of the many places that the government did this. Ugh, it's just gross to think about. Yeah. Oh, and again, if they compensated property owners, but for many of these people, they were being lowballed. Like that's what usually happens. Yeah. So back to Chavez Ravine. So when the people saw this letter, they refused to accept it. Frank Wilkinson went door to door with uh, one of his Mexican American employees to translate for him, and f- and Frank Wilkinson had the audacity to be shocked when people were closing doors on him, kicking them out of his house, out of their homes, not wanting to take this deal. Cause again, he truly believed he was doing good, like, and so he was like, "I can't believe that they don't want to do this." Like, really, this is this is their home. Like, what do you mean? And he, and he probably thought that he was even better than them when when probably they didn't want his help. Yeah, he's uh-huh. like, "Oh, I know better," and it's like and, that kind of attitude. Yeah, and the problem with these kind of like. I don't know, projects or uh, people, even they don't take into account, like, again, the community that's already there. But these people had to move like they fled Mexico, then they left Arizona altogether. And so this is their third home. And Mm -hmm. you think they want to leave again? No. It screams white saviorism. Yeah, it does. White savior. Yeah. White saviorism. So as time passed, many did end up taking the offers, especially because the government began to lower offers. And they were telling them these offers are only going to get lower and lower. Yeah, they thought they had no choice. They were seeing like the offers go down and down and they were like, eventually you're going to get nothing and you're not going to have your house. Like so a lot of them did, you know, pack up and take the offer and the offers, they, they were low. The community grew smaller and smaller, and some families held out, including the Arechica family and the Montalvo family. So uh, this was, and I I already said this, but this was their home. They didn't want to migrate again, right? This was, you know, this was their homes and their houses. They built these houses themselves with their own two hands. So eventually, the city abandoned the Elysian Park Heights project because building in that terrain was very difficult because uh, it was a mountainous region. Like, So then then they couldn't even do it. Yeah. So it was a ravine, and inside the ravine was the neighborhoods, but like, building more than what was already there, it was just going to be very difficult. And on top of that, there was a very... Uh, it was during the Red Scare, and so... A new governor of L.A. was, uh, what's it called, elected. And then uh, he was, like, very anti-public housing. And so then there was, like, a whole hearing about it. And during the hearing, Frank Wilkinson was outed as a card-carrying communist and was imprisoned. Why would he carry a card? Was that actually a thing or was that a thing made up by Well, he burned the card. And... People would join the Communist Party and then burn their card card so they wouldn't be discovered. But since he was under oath and he was asked like, what clubs oh. are you a part of? In your entire life, can you name what clubs you have joined? And so he started with like, I don't know, Boy Scouts, and that I made that up. But like he starts yeah, naming yeah. different ones and eventually he has to admit he w- he is a part of the Communist Party. And so he's arrested. And uh, then the project is killed. Like, it's like, yeah, this isn't happening because of the anti-communist sentiments. So, of Chavez Ravine, obviously, they're going to think, hey, our houses are safe now because this project isn't happening anymore, right? And and by then, La Loma, Palo Verde, and Bishop were almost a ghost town. It was no longer a home to 300-plus families. So they had already dis- destroyed the community already. Yes. And, and only about 20 families remained at this time. The LA City Council tried to cancel the public housing contract, but the federal government did not allow it. And the new mayor that was elected in 1953 had already promised to get rid of housing projects and other un-American projects is what he called them. He was able to buy the land back from the from the federal government, but... Um, because it was up for sale, it had to be used for public land again. So, um, LA was, uh, at the time, LA was already on the hunt for a major sports team to a house, like, as their own. And they were looking at the Brooklyn Dodgers. The Dodgers owner, his name was Walter O'Malley. And I know so little about baseball that I had no idea they were ever Brooklyn Dodgers. Really? Okay. Actually, me neither. (laughs) Yeah. um, The history of the baseball leagues, it's pretty fascinating. Just how many teams jumped around and traveled. Uh, So, yeah, they were originally in Brooklyn. And L.A. was looking for a sports team. Walter O'Malley was looking to move the Brooklyn Dodgers anyway. So, wow, what a perfect deal for the both of them, right? So he agreed that he would purchase this land and move the the Brooklyn Dodgers, but it had to be used for the stadium. And he purchased the the land at a fraction of the price of what the public housing authority had spent to build the uh, Legion Park Heights. So uh, on May 8th, I think actually yeah. On May 8th, 1958, the city approved the referendum that would officially give Walter O'Malley ownership of the land. The next day, police arrived to evict the remaining families. And among them were the Arechigas, the Martins, and the Montalvos. So the, the book that I used for a lot of this, not even, even I like, honestly, everyone, this is, was a, such a fascinating book. Because the way it's written, it, it starts with, like, the history of how the Arechiga family even arrived yeah. to L.A., and then they also started with how Frank Wilkinson went and arrived in LA, and Walter O'Malley. And by the end, they combine all three stories. But it's not written like a history book. It's like it's just such a fa- like. I don't. It sounds really interesting. Yeah, I know nothing about baseball. They also talk about a bit about the history of baseball um along with it, and it was such a fascinating read. So I highly recommend it. And I, I only mentioned tiny portions of it, so it's yeah definitely worth like getting just to get the whole picture but so the book stealing home is what it's called it mentions that neighbors on that morning called each other and asked um because the families knew that they the police was going to arrive and so they called each other like what are you going to do when the sheriffs arrive and they were like lock the doors uh and (laughs) uh on the morning of may 9th journalists flooded the neighborhood along with police and uh construction crews so when police arrived, the Arechiga family had nailed their doors shut, um, rightfully so. Uh, and then there's like a very short two-minute video of that you can see all this happening. There's also pictures. Deputies can be seen walking up to the home trying to convince Avrana Arechiga. She's the matriarch of the family. She was 66 at the time this happened. So they try to convince Avrana Arechiga to leave peacefully, but it doesn't happen. They kicked the door open, but because it was nailed shut, they have the to kick several times to get in. Uh, you can see police break the windows so that they can take out all of the furniture faster because the, arechida, uh, the arechigas are trying to block the door still. Oh my gosh. One by one, you can see the police drag the family out. One of the Arechiga, one of Abrana's daughters is Tolina, Tolina Arechiga, and they're trying to wrestle, like, a nine-month-old baby oh my from her arms. Her nine-year-old daughter tries to block them, and Tolina is a widow. Her husband was killed in World War oh II, because that's a whole other God. subject. Um, Yes, that is a whole other subject. The amount of Mexican-Americans that felt like they needed to serve their country in World War II. Is insane like that. Actually, I'm gonna add that to the topic list because I never knew that. Actually, I didn't know that until I read this book. <laughs> because in the book they mentioned that it, uh, so many kids were first generation here; their parents had literally just gotten here. Then the war broke out, and like every, you know, this. I mean, that, so like, sorry, I was gonna say. Now that I think about it, I think that like Paul's grandpa mm-hmm. was must have been first generation. Here, and he, I think, was like the first one that served in the military. Yes, and the, and in this community, there was a Mexican journalist who truly believed to prove themselves American enough, Mexicans had to serve. And he was writing I in. I have heard about this. Yeah, actually. he was writing I remember in newspapers that. pushing for this, and that's why so many people joined. And there's even a uh, a group of mothers who would send letters. I don't know if you've heard about them. They deserve their own episode too. A group of Mexican mothers that were like they they created this whole system to mail letters to their children that were serving, their sons. So yeah, that's a whole nother topic. But she is the wife of, <sighs> of Matt. It's just so Unfor- unfortunate. It's not even it doesn't even capture like, yeah, a literal a it, veteran's it, a widow, her husband died in service and this is happening to her like, yeah. It's like, for what, bitch? For what? Yeah. And bitch as in the United States. <laughs> Not her. Yeah, of <laughs> course. So um, she is dragged out of the house by four police officers holding onto each of her limbs. And if you've ever seen pictures, this is one of the most famous pictures of this day. Is her being dragged out in this manner. At the same time, across the street, the Vargas family is also being dragged out of their home. They're all dragged and cuffed in a little like lot in front of, in the neighborhood. Then they're placed into the car. They were given lunches that they refused to eat. Uh, <laughs> of course. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. They, they they actually threw, um, another, another one, um, Lola Vargas, she threw her lunch out of the police car and then she was arrested and, well, I'm going to get into her story in a little bit too, but so uh, yeah, they were all dragged and cuffed out. They um, put into police cars. Abrana Arechiga, she was throwing rocks and yelling and crying in Spanish, like, "Why don't they play ball in Mayor Paulson's backyard?" Uh, this, is, this is the new mayor that like approved all this. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually, she too is removed. The families watch as their home, their yeah, their home is bulldozed multiple times. Oh my God. Like, okay, so as you were explaining all this, I'm like, I can't imagine watching as you, family, your neighbors, your friends, your loved ones are being literally pushed out, grabbed, like, her- attacked yeah. to get out of your home and then to see all of your belongings. And like, yeah, sure, things are th- are just things, but things are not just things when you're an immigrant who left your You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, I, I heard this and I c- cried. <laughs> I'm about to cry right now. Yeah, and then I was writing the notes, and I was like, "Oh my god, I'm crying." <laughs> I'm. It's like uh, uh, It's disgusting. It's just like so yeah. much anger. Now, like as you were describing all of it, I feel like chills. Like chills of anger. <laughs> yes. No, I know I'm exactly like exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. Yeah. It's just so fucking disgusting. It is. Yeah. To even like, and just horrifying to know this happened, and it happens yeah and so Lola Vargas, the person who had thrown out her lunch from the police car, she was fined and jailed for resistance. The family uh they attempted to hold out even after their house was bulldozed. They camped out in their former home for a while, but first, let me just go on to this little thing I wrote. The pictures are like very hard to look at, especially after like reading what happened um, and there's footage of this it's also very difficult to watch but after their eviction the arechiga family they were painted as first when all of it happened they were like painted as victims and people like rallied around them but then then they were uh, painted as attention seekers that were not really poor because someone leaked that they owned 11 homes but this was a lie because the when when you think about it, the oldest, the patriarchs of the family, right, and the matriarch of the family, they're the grandparents. Their children went on to own homes, and their cousins, cause, so there was a lot of heredichas. It wasn't just them. And among oh. among this wide extended family, yeah. So they're they, trying to say all the houses were yes, that. were theirs, and they were just greedy ass Mexicans that refused to give up this house. But this was the For, house. First of all. Even if they had a lot of houses, anyone who was forcibly, except unless it's like a landlord situation or whatever, right? Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> why would they want to forcibly leave? Who? Yeah. Who in their right mind? What? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, Abrana and Manuel, um, even with all this negative information being put out, that was not true at all. They refused to leave. First, they were in a tent, and then people rallied and got them in an RV, and they were in an RV in their former house just it was just a lot by then everything else was gone then there was hearings held about the evictions and during the hearing the arechiga family they could no longer like demand to have their home back because it was bulldozed to the ground right so then they were just demanding to be compensated for the house they lost they wanted the original offer and the city did not want to pay that original offer um, and and the city's argument was like, well, if we rule in the favor of the Arechigas, chaos will ensue, and thousands will refuse to leave. When orders like the eviction order of the Arechigas are carried, trying to be carried out, people are gonna. Refuse How about to y'all leave. stop evicting people? What <laughs> the fuck? Seriously, yeah. How is that even a valid argument? That's that was their argument. It, eventually, the Arechigas, they had they they put up a long fight, but they had no choice and they accepted the city's offer of 10,500 which was still less than what the house was worth but yeah. yeah that compared to nothing you know like and at some point the thing when people like face governments and face um like I don't know corporations and whatnot is that these corporations and governments have so much more um financial backing and power that they don't get tired of fighting but people do yeah at some point you have to move on because you have no choice but so that's what they did this was what did I say 1958 yeah 1958 so on April 10th 1962 the Dodgers stadium finally opened like officially opened thousands flocked to watch the game and admire the new stadium the families that were removed and the homes that were once there were long forgotten forgotten to all except the people that were removed, the people that were directly affected by this. They seem to be the only ones still care that this happened, as per usual, right? So I found one um, article that, that they interview Vicente Montalvo, whose grandfather and grandmother had been one of the last people to leave the neighborhood, one of the people that were evicted on that day. And he said that in the 80s, his own father had taken him to a Dodgers game. So his his mom was the Montalvo. His, his dad was an, a Mexican immigrant. And if you go back to the 1980s, Fernando Valenzuela was the Dodgers pitcher. And he was Mexican. And so, so many Mexican and Mexican-American people were behind him, obviously. Yeah. Because who isn't... In it like any sport, if someone from Mexico, like you're gonna rally behind that team, especially if it's your neighborhood. So if you look at the Dodgers and the makeup of Dodgers fans, about half of them are Latino, and then most of those are Mexican Americans or Mexican. I mean, when I when I think about the Dodgers, I think about Mexicans. (laughs) Same, same. And I think about our cousins sporting their L.A. Dodgers. Yeah, their gear (laughs) and and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And especially if they're from the area, because you're going to support whatever whatever team you live in, you know, you're going to support that team automatically. But with the Dodgers, it's like a whole new thing, you know, Um, but especially in the 1980s. And there's actually a documentary about Fernando Valenzuela that's called Fernando Mania because like people really rallied behind him. So uh, and one of these people, it was um, what was his name? Hold on. Vicente, uh, Vicente Montalvo, his dad. Who was a Mexican immigrant? He was uh, all for it, so he took him to the game. And Vicente Montalvo says that his grandfather didn't speak to his father for twenty years, taking him to the game because they were. He was still so affected by what happened that day. It's just, it's. I could totally see it, though. It's just a hard situation all around because, of course, he is gonna still be angry about that and then yeah i would get angry at my son like how dare you fucking go there to the place that displays stuff yeah <laughs> but then i could also see it from uh son's point of view about like wanting to support no no it's the son-in-law to to the grandfather. oh the son-in-law yes. well fuck that son-in-law then <laughs> But like at the same time, he was a Mexican immigrant who wanted to support this Mexican. No, yeah, player. that's what I'm saying. He, like, I understand. But yeah, yeah, but wanting yeah. to support um, a Mexican American on the team, probably the first time. No, did no, you say? not Mexican American. Oh. Mexican. Oh, straight up Mexican. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, you and it was the first Mexican on the Dodgers, right? Yeah. Or did I just make that? Okay, I think uh, it was. So yeah, probably if so much people rallied behind him like that so i I understand like both feelings behind this, yeah, I think in the end it also goes to show that there is no um ethical conception under good- <laughs> no ethical conception of what under capitalism oh, because yeah. here this person is just wanting to support and rally behind someone of his own ethnicity, but to support him and that team means to support. And stand behind the displacement of Mexicans <laughs> in the community. Yeah, like exactly. Fuck. And so many of these families, um, like, like, uh, Vincente Montalvo, he, he says, like, all my grand grandfather talked about was Palo Verde. Like, oh, if something happened, oh, in Palo Verde, we did it better. Because it, it, it was a thriving community. I'm sure they did. Yeah, they <laughs> yeah. probably did. Like, their school, even though it was so low income, was, like, There for the kids, and it was just the like. Honestly, you should read the book because they go into how the community was doing. So I wish I could just like give it to you because I'm done reading it, but uh, it's through audible. You know why you can (laughs) capitalism, (laughs) capitalism, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. (laughs) But um, so yeah, the grandpa, the grandfather would just always, always bring up Palo Verde. The other families they did not talk about the Dodgers. They hated the Dodgers. They did not. Go to the games, and they would like like him. They would disown family members for going to the games, and I can totally see that because, like, honestly, I'm not. I don't want to generalize <laughs> Latina Latino people, but we will disown people even or like, like no, like I mean, we don't talk about Bruno, right? Like, no, we don't talk about the Dodger. <laughs> There's a reason that song was written, <laughs> yeah, and why it's one of the most popular from the movie. It's because. Everyone has a Bruno. In every family. <laughs> oh, my God. No. Well, so when you were saying that the uh, some of the families didn't talk about the Dodgers and, like, it reminded me of the book I'm reading now about uh, Coca-Cola and how the workers who were, I don't know, their spirits were destroyed by Coca-Cola and its um, franchisees and bottling companies, blah, blah, blah. Um And they they don't drink Coke. <laughs> Understandable. And so Valenzuela in the documentary, um, Fernando Mania, he mentions that he never heard about Mexican families being forced out of their homes for the Dodgers and the Dodgers stadium. He said that it was just it was not talked about like it was like almost hidden, like nobody talked about it. And I also found a video of Avrana Arechiga's great-granddaughter, Melissa Arechiga. And she's talking about how she couldn't believe... She grew up in LA, and she couldn't believe that this was not talked about in school. Like, she knew about it because her mother made sure to tell her, like, this is our history. We were displaced for this stadium. Like, so that's why she knew about it. And she mentioned, she says, like, I almost didn't believe my mom because, like, it just wasn't mentioned anywhere else. So I was like, "She, she making this up." You're like, if it's true, I would know about it. I would learn about it, right? Somewhere else, yeah, I would hear about yeah. it. And so then she attends UCLA, and in her understudies, she takes Chicano studies, and this of course, is the first place that she hears about this happening in an academic setting, and the first time that she sees the pictures of her own family being moved and like literally dragged out of their homes. Like, can you imagine? And like, I'm sorry, but the the first time that people learn about this or that people learn about their own cultures should not be in freaking college when you're fucking 18 already, like, or older. And then, you know? sadly, it's usually Chicano studies, which in it of itself yes. is problematic. Right. It has like problematic parts of it, and 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 they're the only ones talking about these things. So then people become Chicanos, and then they. I mean, they, uh, what how do how, how you say, <laughs> how do you say they become, they envelop these same problematic views? Yeah. And, and I mean, I feel like maybe that should be its own episode, but not because it would take forever to even dive into how problematic it is. But they are the only ones talking about this kind of stuff, Um, which is why I didn't hear half of this shit because <laughs> I never took a, uh, course that was like focused on this stuff but melissa arechiga along with vicente montalvo and um one other person that i forgot they formed an organization called buried under blue and with this they're striving to keep the history of la loma bishop and palo verde alive saying i've never heard of that either yeah me neither yeah and and i found the website and yeah it's they go places they talk about what happened They have, they give interviews, um, which is how I found those clips of them saying, talking about the stuff. But, like, that's, that's beautiful, but also traumatizing that you're like, but we see it so, so much with uh, Latina. Yes. Children, just you, you. Yeah. Like when the Mexic the immigrant da- uh, daughter becomes, or the, the child of immigrants becomes an immigrant lawyer, right? Or things like that. Like yes, but yeah, that is what I have on the Battle of Chavez Ravine, which not enough people know about. It it's hard to learn about <laughs> all of this, but it's also I I don't know. I mean, of course, I don't want to romanticize, like, trauma and whatnot, but it's also, like, amazing to hear, like, of the strong community that, you know, thrive there. And just, like, how community-oriented, like, Mexican community is, right? And how, I don't know, it's kind of all fallen to shit for <laughs> so many people because, like, now people don't live there near their families. Oh, yeah. Well, immigration, of course. <laughs> changes all of that and I, yeah it's it's hard out here <laughs> <laughs> it really is um, my little baby's out there crying so this is a good place to end the episode well, I don't want to say I hope you enjoyed it but I hope that you learned something you didn't know um, even if you knew about the story before like maybe I provided some details that you didn't know before which is what I because I knew about it before but I didn't like, like you I didn't know the extent of it yeah <laughs> So uh, next episode, Carmen's going to be talking about Coca-Cola. Yes. Let me preface this by saying, fuck Coca-Cola. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never drinking Coca-Cola again. Which I don't really. Even I don't really even like Coca-Cola. It. They can suck it. <laughs> no, I don't like. I don't. I don't drink a lot of soda anyway. <laughs> no, me either. Me either. But the hold, the hold that Coca-Cola has on the Latina community. I'm actually real. I have it on the topic list, uh Coca-Cola in Mexico specifically. It's, it's ugh, yeah. Yeah. Disgusting. Uh, yeah, and uh thanks for listening. We will catch everyone next time. And if you want lighter episodes from us that are funny, I think funny, uh check out the Patreon where we will cover um M I the asshole stories or Reddit stories that involve money. Maybe we'll do like short history, unknown history if I can find something nicer and lighter than. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's got to be something out there. There's got to be good, good unknown Latin American history out there. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Actually, well, I guess I could talk about it later since Sammy is crying. <laughs> okay, okay, oh, yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah, thanks for listening, and we don't have a tagline, so goodbye for now until we think of one yes yes (laughs) bye bye sources for this episode include stealing home los angeles the dodgers and the lives caught in between by eric nussbaum a medium article titled the three chicano communities buried under dodger stadium the wikipedia entry for battle of travis ravine an NPR article titled Remembering the Communities Buried Under Center Field" and an article from zinproject.org slash Chavez Ravine. Historias Unknown is hosted by Carmen and Cristina, produced by Cristina, edited by Cristina, and researched by both Carmen and Cristina. If you like what you listen to, then please consider giving us a five-star rating or tell your baseball-loving friend about this episode specifically.